This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today, the lack of evidence of improved survival and quality of life benefits behind many new and expensive cancer medications. How best to design apps which will make our behaviour healthier. Premenstrual dysphoric disorder, it's not a myth. And how a search for cancer genes in a heart-treat form of cancer called sarcoma may lead to an unexpected life-saving use for a medication which was originally designed to treat psoriasis. The insight came from research at the Garvin Institute in Sydney into what looks like an Achilles heel in some forms of cancer. David Thomas is head of the Cancer Research Program at the Garvin. Welcome back to the Health Report, David. It's nice to be here, Norman. Just explain what sarcoma is. Remind us. Yes, so sarcomas are um, rare cancers of the connective tissue, muscle, fat, bone and cartilage, and they particularly affect a young population. They're very uncommon and their cure rates are something around 60%, so we lose 40% of our patients to the disease. And surgery is still the focus of treatment. It's absolutely essential, and then we add chemotherapy and radiotherapy on top of that. So it doesn't, but it doesn't help everybody. Now, just, we need to do a little bit of history. I haven't got a lot of time, but a little bit of history, because the Americans did this sort of general gene search in sarcoma to look at what lit up, and they found this one gene, but it wasn't a cancer gene. No, it was unexpected. Um, it's a gene called GRM4, which none of us had ever heard of, and that sent us to the books, and we found that it was associated with inflammation, and that piqued our interest. And what's the connection? We'll just draw the line now, because you it was kind of ignored, and then you picked it up a, a few years ago. Yes, that's right. So um, our first job was to try and figure out a way of verifying whether or not this very large genome-wide association study was true. So we, Which is really a, a dragnet for genes. It is. And it often turns up false positives, which is why we were so obsessive about it. We generated a mouse uh, which lacked GRM4, and uh, that confirmed that the tumours developed more quickly when mice lacked the gene, which implied that it had a causal role. And then um, there'd been some studies recently um, suggesting that GRM4 regulated inflammation in the central nervous system in another mouse study. And that got our interest because immunotherapies, as you know, target the immune system. So that's cancer, cancer, the cancer immunotherapies? Yes, exactly. And you came across this immune molecule that seemed to be involved? Yeah, so central amongst the molecules that GRM4 regulated is the gene interleukin-23 or IL-23. And uh, interleukin-23, uh, we also put into our mouse model. And those mice were astonishingly protected from tumor development. Normally, when we knock out a gene in the immune system, the tumors develop more quickly because we impair the immune system's ability to eradicate the tumors. But this had the opposite effect. We were actually retarded. In fact, about 80% of the mice did not go on to develop tumors. And these are mice that were prone to developing the tumor. Yes. But I thought that you, what you also found, so I'm getting confused now, but you know, I'm sure you'll clarify it for me, is that when, because not everything that happens in mice happens in humans. That's right. And you, and you looked at human samples of osteosarcoma. Yes, yeah, so that was another piece of data that added to the puzzle. When we looked at interleukin-23 levels in human cancers, including in sarcomas, they were generally higher than the surrounding tissue. So it seemed to be associated with tumour development. The opposite from what you found in the mouse. No, exactly what you would expect from the mouse. So when we knocked out interleukin-23 in the mice, 
they were protected. They oh, used right. Sorry. interleukin-23. Okay. To, it was something we haven't seen, so right. it's an unusual thing to observe. Okay, so, the, so the, the, it matched what was in mice, and, but you can't really knock out the gene in humans. No, but one thing that the mouse tolerating the loss of interleukin-23, because the mice were otherwise normal, suggests that when you target it in humans, they should also tolerate it. If you can lose it in your genome, then surely if you drug it and you knock it out with a drug, then you should have the same minimal effect. And that, of course, is the basis of the use of drugs that target interleukin-23 and skin disease. Of course, it could be that the, the cancer just generates inflammation and then your interleukin goes up. It's, it's not necessarily cause and effect. Well, that's exactly right. And if that were true, then and it had nothing to do with it, then the tumours should have developed at the same rate in the presence and absence of interleukin-23 if it was just an epiphenomenon. But the striking effect of protecting the mice when you take out interleukin-23 suggests it plays a causal role. So before we get on to treatment, what could be going, if it is causal... Hmm. Why would it be causing cancer? I think because when you damage a tumor cell, when it's just beginning to form, it sends out a slew of alarm signals that are picked up by the immune system. And for a period of time, the immune system suppresses the tumor development. But then it goes into an equilibrium phase where, if you like, the battle is even. And then finally into an escape phase. So we hypothesize when the cancers evade the immune system. And I think in that escape phase, not merely do the cancer cells become, so to speak, invisible or resistant, but they actually manipulate the immune system to drive their growth. And interleukin-23 generates the sort of inflammation that promotes cancer growth. So is this a particularly weird effect in sarcoma or in osteosarcoma, or is it more widely applicable? So it's certainly not just osteosarcoma, because colleagues of ours on the same paper that we've just published had shown the same thing with soft tissue sarcoma. But I suspect that interleukin-23 is going to be important in a range of cancers. And you don't need to invent a new drug to block interleukin-23. Uh, isn't that wonderful? That's right. So one of the attractive reasons for focusing on this molecule was the fact that there were good drugs already around for the treatment of psoriasis, exquisitely potent drugs. Of course, they hadn't been used to treat cancer, so it raises the possibility that we could use those drugs as a new approach to immunotherapy and one that's perhaps going to work better on osteosarcoma than uh, drugs that we've had recently. And have you got any preliminary evidence that they will do that? No, because the trial isn't opening until the beginning of next year. But, uh, you know, I think mouse studies are very well, as you know, Norman. Uh, they provide strong evidence or a rationale behind a clinical trial, but you have to do the trial to know whether it's going to work. And that's what we'll find out hopefully next year. So one of the problems with these, you know, we do quite a few of these sort of personalized medicine targeted therapies is that, that when they work, they often work just for a while and then mm. the, the body finds another way around it. Mm. And I think in your paper, you showed it's not just interleukin-3, there's a slew of other molecules around that, that, are, that are generated. Uh, are you liable to get a, a, an initially hopeful result that then falls apart or... How do you? How do you? Hmm, it's it's interesting. I mean, that's generally true. That that the drugs we use that target mutations, for example, tend to work for a brief period of time, and then the resistance emerges. But one of the things about the immunotherapies is that once they awaken the immune system, even when you withdraw the drug, there seems to be a a, a prolonged effect, a durable response that lasts for really something at long periods of time. 
Um, and, you know, it's hard to know at this stage until we do the trial whether that will be the case with this molecule, but we hope to find out. And how are you going to get enough patients for the trial because it's a rare disease? Well, so the program that we're running called the MOST trial, um, which is national, uh, has had more than 350 patients with sarcomas enrolled in the past three years. So that will give us more than an, the 32 that we need for this study. And I think it's one of the largest registries of its kind. That's correct. Yeah. Yes, because that was our last story. David, thanks very much for, for joining us. Professor David Thomas is director of the Kinghorn Cancer Centre at St Vincent's Hospital and directs the Cancer Research Programme at the Garvin Institute. Well, let's stay with cancer medications because new cancer medications are being approved thick and fast. They're mostly very expensive and held out as great advances. And there's enormous pressure to make these new treatments available as quickly as possible, and the immunotherapies that David was talking about are good examples. But actually, is this serving patients and taxpayers well? A recent study of cancer medications, which had been approved by the European Medicines Agency, their equivalent of the, our Therapeutic Goods Administration, found that half of them had evidence of a high risk of bias and didn't properly report on critical outcomes like survival and quality of life, which is perhaps what you'd expect as a consumer. Barbara Minces is of the School of Pharmacy and the Charles Perkins Centre at the University of Sydney wrote the editorial which accompanied the study. Also, welcome back to you, Barbara, to Thank the you. health report. So you claim we're not getting the evidence that shows these medications are effective. I mean, how serious is the problem? How widespread? So it's quite widespread in terms of the number of new, new cancer drugs that come to market without adequate evidence that they actually increase survival time. And it's partly that we've really shifted to approving drugs earlier, often based on a lot less evidence than would have been required um, a few years ago, or also as often required with other kinds of conditions. So on what basis are they being approved? Uh, they're often being approved on what's called surrogate outcomes. So shorter term outcomes that the drug looks promising uh, off things like response rate, is the tumor growing or not? Uh, what is called progression-free survival, which sounds wonderful, but it actually doesn't necessarily Meaning map overall to, to overall harm. survival to whether a person lives longer enough. Because you could get accelerated growth at a later stage in, in, the, in the tumor cycle. Um, well, as uh, if a person's tumor grows a bit, then... Uh, they would be considered not to have progression-free survival, but you don't really know what's going to happen with that person in the longer term versus someone else who's in the trial. So you really need those hard outcomes that say, does this drug provide a benefit for the person's health? Now, I understand the regulators aren't that happy with this situation. What, what are the pressures here? Is it about time? Is it about money in the pharma industry, not wanting well, to spend money on trials? What is it? Well, I think the fast. there's been a lot of pressure to get drugs to market faster in general. And uh, the, the, in terms of... I think cancer it, drugs. A particular cancer drugs. And partly it's, of course, because if somebody is ill with a cancer that isn't well treated, uh, that a promising new therapy can sound like it would be life or death. So it's very, can seem very important. What's very interesting is there's been a study done that looked at how long did it take to actually test whether these drugs work in terms of keeping people alive longer and improving quality of life or being safer than alternatives versus uh, these sort of shorter term outcomes. And on average, it takes about a year longer. 
So, you know, one question is, why aren't we asking for that kind of evidence? And in the meantime, there are compassionate access programs for people to get access to drugs earlier if they have tried everything else that's around and it's not working for them. Now, the pharmaceutical industry has two answers to this. One right. is you can do what's called post-marketing surveillance. So yeah. get the drug on the market yeah. and uh, we'll see how it goes. So when you put the and the other... Uh, and the uh, and the other one is that we'll we'll share the risk if it doesn't benefit the patient we we won't charge you for the drug but we'll put that to one side let's look at post marketing surveillance when you look at post marketing surveillance how do these drugs play out after they've been approved? Oh, well, there was a study that was done of 93 new cancer drugs that were approved on the U.S. market, and 19 of them were found to increase survival. So these were 93 new drugs that were approved without actual knowledge of an effect on overall survival. So 19 out of 93 is actually not very good odds in terms of having that evidence post-market that the drugs are doing uh, what patients and oncologists would hope that they were doing. The other side to this, I think, is quality of life. Because, I was going to ask you about yeah, that. Because you don't need a long-term trial to look at whether a person's quality of life is improved or is worsened when they're on a drug. But in this series of uh, like of cancer drugs that were approved over a three-year period in Europe, less than half of them actually were measuring quality of life. So it's a belief rather than you've got solid well, evidence. Well, you would want to have that so, evidence. So yes. when the Americans discovered this, did the Food and Drug Administration remove them from the market? Or? No, it's much harder to get a drug off the market than to get it on the market. There have been a few cancer drugs that have been removed from the market because uh, after they've been approved, they've been found to actually worsen health. One is bevacizumab or Avastin for uh, advanced breast cancer, for instance. But uh, if a drug is not shown to do anything for survival, generally it still stays on the market. So these drugs can cost $100,000 a year. Yes. And they base that on improved survival, better quality of life. You don't need to go into hospital. You can swallow a pill, that sort of thing. It doesn't sound as if we're getting value for money in some of these drugs. Sometimes we are, and sometimes we're not. So the problem, there certainly are some new cancer drugs that are very effective, and then there are others where we really don't have the evidence. So we're certainly not getting value for money if a drug comes to market without adequate evidence to show that it's, it's improving a person's health. So the solutions regulators have got to toughen up. Uh, I think that is a solution. And of course, the solution is probably also less political pressure on regulators to approve drugs more quickly, regardless of the consequences. Thank you, Barbara. Fascinating. Associate Professor Barbara Minces is in the School of Pharmacy at the University of Sydney. Premenstrual dysphoric disorder, PMDD, has been called premenstrual syndrome on steroids. It can badly affect some women in the second half of their menstrual cycle, and it goes away as quickly as it started. PMDD is real, and research is closing in on its causes. Joe Lauder prepared this for the health report. A bad month is like two weeks, two weeks of symptoms. So when it's bad month after month, it's essentially 50% of your life is taken over by this thing. This is 30-year-old Julia telling me about her experiences with PMDD, or premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Although it's often described as severe PMS or PMS on steroids, 
Julia says it's quite different. PMDD is essentially symptoms of depression, anxiety, you know, an inability to stop crying, basically an inability to function. Think of it like a depression that comes for up to a couple of weeks and then disappears suddenly, usually on the day that you get your period. It's very easy to get amnesia each month about just how bad it gets. And it's very disorientating because of the way that it fluctuates. In terms of the amnesia, how do you feel when it goes away? Or is it just one day that it's just lifted? Yeah, it's a really, really surreal experience. PMDD is like having a dark cloud descend over you out of nowhere. And once you get your period, it lifts. While one day you were feeling like everything in your life was wrong and the next day you feel joy and gratitude and you have perspective on your life. You know what it is? I just feel relieved. Severe PMDD occurs in about 5% of women. Dr Rosie Worsley is an endocrinologist at Jean Hales for Women's Health. The symptoms of PMDD are similar to those of depression, and for the women Dr. Worsley treats, PMDD is having a significant impact on their lives. What distinguishes PMDD from, say, PMS or common PMS things like having some cravings or things like that, is that it has very severe mood symptoms as part of it. They might not be working at all in that time. I've had people that won't travel because they don't want to risk having PMDD when they're overseas and therefore wasting all their money. I've had women that have been wanting to have children but reluctant to do it because they're very severely affected and how would that impact on a baby, etc. So it, it can have really widespread consequences. The whole issue of this is that it's a cyclical depression. It occurs every month and uh, is a full-on awful, horrible depression, not just slightly feeling sad. Jayshree Kolkani is a professor of psychiatry and the director of the Monash Alfred Psychiatry Research Centre, and she studies PMDD, women's hormones and mental health. Professor Kolkani says the key to diagnosis of PMDD is the switching on and off of the symptoms. When we hear that, we need to think about things that are biological causing this depression, such as hormone shifts. PMDD is caused by the fluctuation of hormones that all reproductive age women experience. For most women with PMDD, the symptoms kick in during the luteal phase after ovulation. It's when the ovaries start producing progesterone in the lead up to the period. So this is where it gets complicated because the brain hormones like oestrogen, progesterone, testosterone, all of these hormones that are in charge of reproduction actually are very important brain hormones. So they have a separate set of effects in the brain and we can't see that of course and we can't measure it. Professor Kolkani says her team is working to develop a progesterone biomarker test for PMDD. The fluctuations are there in in all reproductive age women but for some reason some women have a greater vulnerability and respond worse to the fluctuations than other women. So we're, we're trying to work on a test to see if we can measure which woman is going to be more at risk. We haven't got there yet, but we are working on it. I was going to ask you about what your research is focusing on in this area and what are the kind of the real unknowns here? Our, our work is on hormones and cognition, um, which is the higher intellectual thinking, mood and behaviour. 
also we're looking at it from a biological marker point of view to see if we can develop the test to to actually go yep you are more vulnerable because it's not just pmdd we also have to remember that the women who get pmdd are more likely to get postnatal depression um, once they have their baby and the same women are more likely to get perimenopausal. As it's driven by these progesterone changes, PMDD can be treated with some types of contraceptive pills as they stop hormonal fluctuations. Antidepressants are also a treatment option and they can be effective if you just take them part-time. Dr Rosie Worsley again. Unfortunately, a lot of the pills have contained synthetic progesterones that can also mimic these types of symptoms in susceptible women. So the pill and antidepressants are sort of hit and miss type treatments. They won't work for everybody. In very severe cases, in rare cases, we're able to use things like a medical menopause. So we actually just turn people's ovaries off. PMDD was formally recognised as a depressive disorder in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM, in 2013. But women still report trouble finding a doctor who understands the condition. Professor Kolkani believes that reflects a broader issue with women's mental health. For a long, long time, there was a quite a sharp delineation between what have hormones got to do with mental health? You know, the hormones are all about the reproduction, having babies and so on. It's got nothing to do with your the way you feel or the mental state. And that was really bad because it, it is all connected and we are learning more about that. There's a kind of weird conflict here because um, y- y- there's a sense of, hang on, are you saying that all women you know, moody, unreliable creatures that are just kind of at the mercy of their hormones. No, not at all. But there are some women who really, really suffer and struggle. Professor Jayashri Kulkarni ending that report from Joe Lider. One of the hardest things to do when it comes to looking after your own health and well-being is to change ingrained behaviours. Two techniques for behaviour change that recently came together to get people to exercise more were turning behaviour change into a game and adding what's called behavioural economics, using the quirks of the way our brains work when they make decisions to nudge us in the right direction. In this case, using apps to increase people's daily step counts. Mitesh Patel is director of the Penn Nudge Unit at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and he spoke to James Bullen. Traditional economics assumes that humans behave rationally. If you give them a bunch of choices, they're going to make the right choice. They're going to think about their long-term health. But we know that's not how people behave. People are more motivated by immediate gratification. They don't want to lose something that they have. And they're really influenced by the peers and family members and friends around them. And so in order to incorporate that within the gamification design, we did a couple of things. We had participants sign a pre-commitment contract that strive to achieve your goal every day. And anytime they logged back into the platform, they were reminded that they committed to sticking to that goal. We give them points up front, 70 points, 10 for each day of the week. Your typical game, actually, you have to do something first. You have to reach your step goal and then you get points. Here we, we flip that. We give you the points up front and then you could lose them. We had multiple levels, ranging from blue, bronze, silver, gold, and platinum. And usually you start at the lowest level and work your way up. But actually we started people at the middle. That made the highest level seem more achievable. And then if people didn't get engaged in the beginning, 
they would actually drop down from silver to bronze and feel that loss of social status. And that can be energizing and motivating to get people over that initial hump of engaging in the program. We added something called the fresh start effect, this idea that people are more motivated around temporal landmarks. You know, New Year's resolutions, the beginning of the year is the best example, but in our case, we use beginning of the week. So if you had a bad week, you get a fresh start with seven new points the following week. And then if you got to gold or platinum by the end, then you would get either a trophy or a medal. So there was some sort of prize, although it wasn't a monetary prize in any sense. And just to tease out one of those points, I think where you lost points from your balance, that was about something called loss aversion. So people trying to avoid losses rather than being motivated by gains. That's right. We know that actually losing something is twice as motivating as gaining an equivalent amount. It's a two to one ratio. And so we've seen in a lot of different contexts that people will do much more to avoid losing something that they have. It makes them feel like they have some skin in the game and they actually have some ownership in, in those points. They're theirs and so they don't want to give them up. There was a further test that you were doing about whether players were battling each other or working together really. That's right. So we had four arms to the study, and we had 602 people from 40 U.S. states enrolled in this. They were all overweight or obese. And you either got put in the control arm, which you used a wearable device just by itself, or one of the three gamified arms. But we slightly changed the game to enhance a different type of social incentive. In one arm, we gave people a leaderboard at the end of each week to show them how they were doing in their points for the week and cumulatively. And that was meant to enhance competition. In another arm, we tried to focus on collaboration. We'd randomly pick someone from a group of three every day, and they would represent the team. And the idea was you didn't know if you were going to be the one selected or not, and so you wanted to work together with your teammates to make sure no matter who was selected, everybody met their goal. And the third was focused on support. We asked each person to pick a family member or friend who could get a weekly notification on how they were doing, and then they were meant to either praise them when they were doing well or really help support them when they weren't. How did the different groups do? We got a baseline step count. We asked them to pick a goal about 33 to 50% higher. And what we found was that all three of the intervention groups, the gamified groups, did better than the control arm in the six-month period. But that competition did the best. So competition increased their step counts by about 920 steps per day more than the control arm, while collaboration and support increased their step counts by a little over 600 steps per day. Did that surprise you that competition did best? No one's ever compared these different things. And I think a lot of people get concerned that competition could turn people off, you know, if you're not doing well. And so the fact that it was so much more motivating and had such a larger increase than the others was a bit surprising. I would say the most surprising thing was actually what happened in the follow-up period. We turned the game off and said, let's just continue to follow everyone for three months. Basically, everyone did what the control arm was doing. And what we found was that support and collaboration, which increased daily step counts by about 600 steps per day while they were playing the game, had no difference compared to the control arm after you turned it off. They basically went back to doing what they were doing before. But the competition arm actually had a 570-step increase that was significantly different from control, meaning that competition was so motivating, not only did it do the best during the six-month game, but it built new habits that maintained even in the three months after the game stopped. And on average, the average person in the competition arm walked about 100 miles more than the average person in the control arm during the nine-month study. Every couple of hundred steps that you increase up until about 7,500 is linked to lower chances of dying early. Even changing your step counts by you know, 500 to 900 steps per day can really add up over time. And another interesting finding you made was that the people who had the lowest step counts to begin with improved the most. Why do you think that was? 
Yeah, that's right. You know, we had some questions around the study. If people actually wondered whether the ones who were already active were the ones who were increasing their step counts. That actually ended up being the reverse. The ones that were already active, they probably didn't need the game. They were already motivated and the game wasn't the thing that was going to push them further. But the people who were sedentary at baseline, the people who were struggling to get their exercise up, they benefited the most. Those are the ones that there's the greatest opportunity to really change their behavior. Do we know how this intervention compares to other means of improving step count, maybe things like coaching or web-based interventions or even financial incentives? So we don't know that yet. We actually have a large trial going on right now to compare gamification, financial incentives, or both together over twice the period. So this study was nine months. The current study that we have in the field is a year and a half to figure out what leads to the biggest impact over a 12-month intervention. And then if we follow people an additional six months, which one leads to more sticky behavior change? And these findings might have implications for workplace wellness programs, other health interventions where gamification is becoming more common. Yeah, I think gamification is used widely. I mean, some insurance companies offer gamified programs to 5, 10 million members. The challenge is that they haven't incorporated a lot of these behavioral insights. One, because there haven't been many studies doing it. Ours is really the largest clinical trial on gamification to date. But two, because you know, this is something that is an emerging science. And and now that we have some insights, there's a real opportunity to be able to do this. And and, and what we're finding is that a little friendly competition can really go a long way. So you, you know, not only want to think about the design of the game, but you want to think about how social networks can really enhance the benefit from these types of programs. Mitesh Patel is director of the Penn Nudge Unit at the University of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. And he spoke to James Bullen. I'm Norman Swan. This has been The Health Report. See you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.